Welcome to Weapon of Choice, a podcast where creatives across mediums give us insight into the weaponry of their art. Each episode, you'll be hearing an interview with an artist who uses their art as a weapon of choice for social change and disruption, visibility and justice, cultural critique and resistance, among other things that ignite social consciousness and community action. These artists will tell us about their journeys toward the battles they are fighting, how they design, sharpen, and develop their artistic weaponry to strike a blow against injustice in the world. Welcome back, welcome back. You're listening to Weapon of Choice Podcast. This is Andrew. This is Tommy. How's everybody doing out there? We want to know. Let us know. (laughs) For this episode, we interviewed James Spooner. His documentary was the seminal film Afropunk. He also runs a uh, weekly comic strip called Spooner's No Fun. He also founded the Afropunk Music Festival. Um, We talk about vegan tattoos. We talk about graphic novels. It definitely went places we didn't even expect it that were so raw, so real. And we so appreciated his candor and his, his willingness to lean into his truth and have that conversation with us and trust us to be there to you know listen to um all the real shit he had to say which i kid you not um the man the man you know as an artist as a person as a father what he's experienced like him reflecting on that experience was just such an honor to be able to be in the room and listening to his words yes and we are so excited to share those words with you in this episode all right James Spooner, everybody. Here it is. My name is James Spooner. I'm a artist, tattoo artist, illustrator. Uh, I was a filmmaker for a long time. Uh, and that's me. James Spooner, thank you for joining us on the Weapon of Choice podcast. We are in the uh, awesome Monocle studio in Los Angeles. And uh, we are honored to have you on the show today on our first L.A. trip. We've been in touch and uh, we've been blessed to have people reach out from the get go. And since day one, really, yeah, recommend we talk to you. And uh, we're, we're so glad we're here and glad you're having us here. Um, you know, if you think back to a specific age in your life, doesn't have to be childhood. Uh, more often than not, it is for people. Um, you know, how old were you? when you realized you're not normal? <laughs> um, well, I mean, the first thing I wanted to, I, I would go to was like my, like kind of punk origins. But I think I, eh, I immediately then started thinking earlier than that because um, I'm biracial and I think uh being biracial automatically lets one know that they're like, they don't necessarily fit into a box. And um, uh, we, my family moved a lot as well. So when, um, so like I was born in New York and lived in Flatbush until I was like five. And then we moved to the high desert in, in California. And that couldn't be like more of a, American juxtaposition um and it was like very Caribbean moved to like very uh, let's just say uh poor and white and um so you know 
right away, you know, as a child, I mean, as a little child, I remember being like three years old and like, like black folks didn't know how to cut my hair and white folks didn't know how to cut my hair. You know, we had to go, we like found a nice Dominican barber who was like knew what was up, you know, but like then in California, there were no Dominicans, you know what I'm saying? So, um, you know, so I remember very early on, like all the girls having a crush on Ricky Schroeder and me not having anyone to identify with on television, you know, and finding, you know, having to like settle for like brunette white guys and just be like, well, you know, like me and Kevin Arnold both have fluffy brown hair. You know? <laughs> um, so, I, you know, the, the question of like, when did I realize I was not normal? I think that was, I mean, that drastic transition might have been right from the beginning, you know, mm-hmm. like, yeah. um, I, I would definitely say by three or four, you know? Yeah. And, and so you moved and you made that move. Um, with, yeah. Then you made the move to California with uh, your two parents. Did you have any siblings? Um, I my I have a lot of siblings on my dad's side. My, but I'm the only one from my mom and dad. Mm-hmm. Um, so we moved to from New York to California together. Um, he, the three of you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, he was he's a Caribbean immigrant. And when he moved to uh, New York, he moved to New York on a this is like totally a, a tangent. But I guess that's what's for. Right. Yeah. OK, so my dad moved from St. Lucia in the mid seventies on a sportsman's visa. He was a bodybuilder, professional bodybuilder. And um, won Mr. America, Mr. USA a couple of times, like a huge guy. Um, but there's no, even when he won those titles, he wasn't able to like monetize those titles, you know? Like they straight up would be like, we'll put you in the magazine, we're not gonna put you on the cover of the magazine, you know, it's a black guy. So, um, he luckily is also really intelligent and though he didn't have a high school diploma, he immediately like got his GED and um, went to school and got a, uh, you know, graduated from Rutgers, but still couldn't really find work. So he ended up becoming a correctional officer in LA, I mean, not in LA, in Lompoc, California. So we all, moved you know following the job i guess mm-hmm. um my mom's a school teacher a special ed so she could kind of work find work anywhere mm. and did uh did you like ever like set such a young age you know tap your dad or tap your mom or um and just have these conversations about you know you're seeing that juxtaposition of like oh blah, you know white actors on tv that everyone idolizes and has crushes on did you ever like go to your parents to ask them about like just even to tell you tell them you had a hard day or did you just which ways did you go into yourself when you got home where it's at this, you know as a child the home is the safest place yeah to, uh, I mean you know, process any of that I you know my home really wasn't that safe so like my mom is great my dad is not a very good person and at that age I didn't really. I didn't know the extent of things, but they fought a lot. Mm-hmm. And I knew that he was like, I understood the word womanizing and cheater, like 
very early yeah, on. Yeah, so, yeah. So, and so, I mean, they got a divorce by the time I, I think I was eight. Um, so I think that like, when I think back to my childhood, um, I know that I have like these, uh, identity issues, but like the ones that I just mentioned around hair texture or skin tone or whatever. But, um, there were like, you know, there's like violence in my house. So it's not like I'm going to dad to be like, Hey, like, your tell bedroom. me what it's like to be a black man. <laughs> you know? So like the four walls of your bedroom within the house was perhaps the, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it's, yeah, it's just like, you know, like I could always talk to my mom when I was young, but sure. I think that like, especially in the seventies and, and early eighties, like, I mean, even now, like white people aren't equipped to, to, to nat- they're not naturally equipped to talk about race, uh, race and mm-hmm. especially, you know, to, to the intricacies of race and then to, to make it age appropriate for mm-hmm. a seven or eight year old, you know, mm-hmm. like I struggle with that and I'm biracial. My, my partner is biracial. My kid's mom is biracial. Like every, like there's, and we all struggle with like the appropriate way, you know, to talk. So the point is, is that like, you know, we're all, we should be come equipped with uh, the tools to talk to a mixed race kid about what it's like to be mixed. And, and we have trouble with it. So, so like my my white mom in the 70s or the early 80s is definitely doesn't, you know, she's coming from a like, all you need is love kind mm-hmm. of um, mm-hmm. background. So having that information and, it, you know, that misinformation, it almost feels, I, I think that I probably internalized that there's something wrong with me if I don't, if I'm not feeling that the best of both worlds is really like something that applies to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, truth be told, I think that it took me until my late 20s to actually, um, like, go through the fire and come out and be like, oh, hey, guess what? Best of both worlds, you know? Mm-hmm. But it really took me having to go through, like, the worst of both worlds before I could, like, appreciate it. And did that have anything to do with how you were, you know, socially? As you were on a journey from eight years old to twenty-eight, um, in in thinking about how in thinking about how best of both worlds applies, like some people just have a natural like. I you know I, I'm adopted by a white family, and but I, I lived ten minutes from the hood and went to the suburban white schools, and I just every time I look back to get older and older, I was like, wow, I didn't. I I don't know exactly what equipped me to that to like adapt back and forth but i do i did know that it was the best of both worlds because i was straddling so easily but i didn't know it then you know well i think that like you know uh who is it like the boys who talked about um uh double consciousness and yeah when i learned about the double consciousness uh concept which for the listeners who don't know is like basically the idea that black people uh, live in by the by the by the nature of being black in this country. You both 
understand what it means to be black because you are black, but you also live in a white world. So you understand what it means to be white um, in a way that uh, conversely white people most likely can't, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So that combined with like code switching, like, you know, every black person, uh, any black person who deals with non-black people is very uh, understands about code switching and how to like talk with one group and talk with another group. And um, for me, it's like, I had it also com- a, a, another layer because I'm Caribbean. So it's like an immigrant thing as well. Mm. But um, it basically, I mean, it just, it took a long time of me being part of a mostly white community um, or you know, in California and then in high school, moving to New York, back to New York. And then I was like, but that by that point, I was like fully submerged into punk rock. So I was like, uh, the, the punk scene in New York is very ethnically diverse, but it's still not like a majority black scene. You know what I'm saying? So I, so I still was like, quote unquote, trying to be white, even though all my friends were of color, they might not have a, some of them are black, not all of them are black, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's like this, you know, this, there's like, there's self-hate that go- comes along with being told that you're not anything, you know? And by the time that I got to my uh, early 20s and I was like, you know, like kind of like a mod kid with like a perm, perm straight hair and you know, going to these like hipster parties, I, um, or, or we called them scenesters back then, but <laughs> early nineties, um, I, uh, I started to reflect and I started to be like, wait a minute, what the hell did this punk scene do to me? Mm-hmm. Like why, you know, and I've talked about this many times before, but it's really just like, how can, uh, I'd be part of a scene where at 15, I'm learning about feminism. I'm like going to like uh, pro-choice rallies. I'm like down for gay rights. 16, I become vegan. You know, like all of these things are like, I'm, I'm uh, embracing and loving all of these different people and animals and and identities and and being comfortable with you know talking about speciesism and whatnot yet the 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 furthest extent of a conversation about race Mm -hmm. was fuck nazis yeah and so it's like you're entering this punk space in your coming of age stage um and for basically everything outside of what is race is there's like multitudes of safe spaces for being in a punk scene, except for it's like, Ooh. yeah, like, well, you know. you know, none of us, we're not racist. My, you know, everybody's got like, everybody's friend is, they, everyone's got a black friend, but it's all the same black person, you know? I'm sure you've been that guy, you know? It's like 20 white dudes are all like, yo, but you know, that's my boy. And it's like, yeah, you know, I read this really great book years ago, um, which I cannot remember the name of, so whatever, but um, it had a study in it where 
they did some kind of Gallup poll or whatever, and they asked, they basically came to the conclusion that if for white for white people's perspective on what their friendships are with black people, if that were actually true, then every black person in America would have to have six white best friends. Oh, they did that. They crunched it. Inc- inc- like including all of those who were incarcerated. Like it was like yeah. every black person in America would have to have six white friends for if it was true. For the for the flip example to be, you know, for yeah. all the white people who say that they have a black friend. You know. And I don't know about you, but most black folks mm-hmm. I know, they know some white people, but mm-hmm. you know, we I mean we all kind of stick with our you know, with our own, so to speak, you know, hmm. even, even those of us who are like alternative or mm. into, you know, or who actually do have white friends. I, mean, I got white best friends, yeah, mm-hmm. but I got a whole lot more black friends. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, so you did, and then you just coast, coast, coast in different stages of, of living. And, you know, I, I just, can't help but think about like what did what did punk do to you this is you start to reflect it in your early 20s right mm-hmm. you said yeah. you had this greater realization in your later 20s but in your early 20s you started to like really reflect and yeah i had like a i had like a uh, a like definitive aha moment mm. and when i was 23 um at that point my dad was living back in the caribbean and i was like oh let me go to saint lucia like i've Spent my whole life thinking that like I didn't fit in with Black Americans, not because um, I, I'm not Black, but because I'm not American. You know, like I mm. thought I was like I'm Caribbean, so that's why I don't get mm. it or whatever. You know, yeah, so yeah. then I I was like, all I got to do is go back home. You know, and I went back home, and I was mm. like immediately slapped in the face with like, you know, you aren't Caribbean either. You know, mm. that's a very like typical immigrant experience, you know? Yeah. So um, I go home and like being like as light as I am and in the Caribbean, they have even a, a, a different set of like standards on. Uh, I mean, basically, even though I'm half black, like because I'm so light skinned, I'm white in mm. the Caribbean. So I show up and they're just like, Give me money, white guy, you know, and, you know, and I would be walking with like my brother who's like dark skin and we look almost like twins. He's like a couple years older than me, but people would be like, look at that. Look at them. They look the same, except for he's white, you know, and even my own brother or my own sister. I remember my, I met a, a sister who I'd never met before and she's older than me. And she was like, I always knew I had a white brother, but, you know filling the whatever the rest of the mm. sentence is. And I'm like, we have the same dad. Like how, mm. you know, but that's just. And they would joke about it. It's not even a joke. It wasn't disparaging. It was just like, I always knew I had a white brother. I'm so glad to meet you. Long like just reality for her. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, and that's, you know, I would be like, I'm like, Bob Marley is half black. Like, are you saying that he's white? And they're like, no, but look at him. You know, <laughs> so it's like, it doesn't matter how, like for the people I am or how I was raised. It doesn't, none of that matters. It's just like what I look like, you know? And I, and you know, that was something that like, 
triggered me. And then I had this very reactive moment where like, I like got dreads and I was like wearing dashikis and it was almost like mm-hmm. a comedy, like what my response was to that, you know, or I just like had to be hella black, you know, and I moved out of Williamsburg and I moved to, to Crown Heights. And, you know, that's when I started making Afropunk. And, uh, you know, and it was only through the process, like this kind of like two year period of like group therapy. And then uh, in that, I mean, making Afropunk. Mm-hmm. And then also yeah. um, multiple years after that of showing it and meeting people around the country um, and other parts of the world where I realized like, oh, you know what? There isn't this one singular black experience and finding out that uh, there is there's like the mainstream like BET black experience. And then there's like the other black experiences, which is like the whole rest of us have, you know, like I became really validated and comfortable with like who I am. So now it's like. I don't have this need to like look a certain way or present myself and so, you know, like Mm -hmm, I can just mm -hmm. comfortably be me and like be very comfortable with like, you know, as far as like race stuff goes and just like, whatever. It was like, it took, it took two years to finish the bot. Yeah. I interviewed like 89 people. So, you know, and then I'm sitting there editing that over and over. <laughs> I'm here. I'm listening to these repeated stories. Yes, yeah. you know, more and more. And and then I, I mean, I can't tell you. Well, I can tell you. I will tell you how uh, enlightening it was for me to start screening it because the people in the film are like punk rockers. So I'm like, oh, I'm dealing with black people who are punk rockers, hardcore kids. Like they have the an experience that's similar to mine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then when I, when I, the, the second screening was at the American Black Film Festival in Miami. And it was, uh, I had two screenings and like they both sold out, which was like already shocking to me. Awesome. Then I, um, now I looked around the audience and like, it was like regular old black folks, like just mainstream you know, they might go see Medea or something, you know, like regular black folks. And I'm like, why would they want to see this? You know? And then afterwards people coming up to me and being like, Hey man, I would like, I don't know anything about punk, but I totally relate to this because like, you know, I was the one of the only black kids in my university course, what you know, mm-hmm. like direction or like mm-hmm. I'm the only black person on my floor at my business or, yeah, yeah. you know what I'm saying? I was the only black person on the lacrosse team, like whatever it is. It's like, there's this outsider feeling yeah. and this, this other experience of, of black folks telling each other that they can only be this one like pigeonhole kind of, uh, thing that all of a sudden I realized, Oh, this story is bigger than black. Miami was the first time that people were physically coming up to you not who were not punk relating these resonance yeah. from them. So when you went home that night, like, what did you think to yourself? You know, My mind you? was blown. I was I, like, oh, I, turns out I relate to like all kinds of black folks. It's not just like punk rockers. 
Did you, you know? did you feel in any way cheated by your previous societies or? You know, looking at back at it as like a 40 something, mm-hmm. I'm like, my previous experience, excuse me, my previous experience was with like high school kids, junior high, you know, like they're all assholes. Mm-hmm. Like my kid's eight now and she, her, she's got a bunch of assholes in her, in her <laughs> class. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it so you know, they never had the opportunity to, and they never had the opportunity and I never had the vocabulary mm-hmm. to articulate mm-hmm. what's, what I'm going through and, yeah, what, yeah. and what they're seeing. But seeing this movie, I think that, I think that the Afropunk documentary like uh, resonates with so many people because it's like a dissertation on that other experience Mm -hmm. and so many people are like thank you you just like wrapped up my last you know 20 years and now i can't wait to show this to my aunt my mom my you know and it and it even worked on my dad you know like when he came and saw it he like stood up and made the whole room cry because he was just like i'm gonna cry because he was just like um why didn't you tell me this when you were 14? Like now I, you know, I'm standing there as a 25 year old and he's standing up and talking to me in this Q and a session Hmm. saying like, I finally understand, like I'm seeing you as a black man for the first time. And that, I mean, I'm crying now. That was a big deal, you know? So, and everyone in the audience was like, fuck, you know? And I can't tell you how many times during that, three years of active screening that film, kids would tell me that they, you know, this is my fourth time seeing it. And I like, you know, I brought my whole family or like moms would come and they'd be like, like, oh my God, my son is in college and I've treated him like shit all these years and I feel awful, you know? Mm -hmm. Like I'm a caller right now, you know? Like those kind of like really, it really like touched people on this like very, personal level mm-hmm. and uh, you know well, I can't wait for the 20 year anniversary <laughs> <laughs> well you know what's cool is that it's still screening there's a screening tomorrow somebody just like you know yeah. so like it's it it's still resonating in, in some kind of way you know so and, yeah celebrating something that impactful could always just stop at celebration and it could like like Black Panther moved people and people brought their family members to second and third screenings mm-hmm. um, for all the magic that was wrapped up in all of that black excellence. But you're you're talking about people with like my four cousins, like I never looked at them as black and your dad. I mean, it happened over and over again where people would just be like, yo, I got a cousin who yeah. blah blah blah. And I always just thought he was weird. Everyone should see this documentary. Mm-hmm. It, it, I appreciate that, and I, and and I also agree. Like, you know, <laughs> um, you know and, it, and it's you know something that struck me I'll never forget is while I was editing, I was like I did all the editing at home, but I was I had got some like some sweetening to do at the mm-hmm. very end, and I I took it up to uh, a friend's house in Harlem who had a 
like they basically converted the first floor of their brownstone into a uh, editing studio. People would rent it out and whatever, yeah. right? And um, so I'm in this one room that's in between these other rooms, kind of a railroad apartment. So I'm in this one room <laughs> and I'm just like got my headphones on and I'm doing this stuff. But it's also playing over like the loudspeaker. Um, I don't know why I have headphones on. Maybe I'm imagining that. But anyways, I'm not paying attention. I'm paying attention to what I'm doing. Right. And, and this woman keeps walking, walking by. And from the corner of my eye, like, I think she's a white woman. I don't even, I, like, I'm not, I'm not really paying attention, you know? And then she stops and she just, like, it's right behind me. And she's watching it. And she's like, damn, are we still talking about this? And I turn around, and it's not a white woman. It's Kathleen Cleaver from Black Panther Party. <laughs> like, she's, she's, like, organizing, like, the Black Panther Film Festival out of that space. And uh-huh. she was just walking by. And I'm like, like, you know that, that picture with the woman with the afro? Yeah, 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 you know? yeah. Like, she's standing right there. And, she, and she's like, are we still talking about this? Mm. You know? So, yeah, 20 years later, does it still, like, you know, 15 years later, does it still resonate? Like, yeah, you know. Were there moments where you were in an interview and it's what someone else was was sharing with you, it suddenly solidified an experience that you knew from adolescence? Well, like, the only thing that surprised me that, like, I mean, I I basically had, I knew which questions to ask and I knew what the answers were going to be. You okay, know, okay. I, and, and because I had experienced like everything from being like very self-hating all the way to like um, having uh, this at the time new sense of like uh, black pride or whatever, like I, because I had like felt the gamut, I kind of knew like, OK, I'm going to find a protagonist who's like very about his blackness and still and then I'm going to find a protagonist who is very confused. I know that they're going to exist. I just, mm-hmm. you know, like, I'll just wait until I meet them. You gotcha, know? gotcha. But um, the thing that surprised me, that shocked me, was um, when there's a scene in the, in the film where people start talking about uh, being the, seeing the, uh, uh, the other black person in, mm-hmm. in the scene mm-hmm. and being like, wait a minute. What are you doing here? I'm supposed to be the only black person. Like throwing them shade because they understand that their role is of the black guy in the scene. (laughs) And now you're kind of disrupting this, you know, or like, or the uh, coupled with the, um, you know, I'm black and that, that girl is black and I'm not going to, I don't want, I want to talk to her, but I'm not gonna, because I don't want people to think that because we're black, we're supposed to date. Mm-hmm. you know even if i do want to date them i'm not going to give that to you guys mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying so it's it's this thing where like when mm-hmm. those conversations started happening i was like oh ouch yes you're right i i didn't have that prepared in my like uh-huh. you know my storyboard or whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? wow wow um and did even like because you know we we all and so many will agree that everyone should see this documentary, but did, did, uh, you know, made a great festival run, hit Toronto even, uh, did universities, lecturers start to reach out to you and, 
or, or even, you know, a, yeah, lot, of, a lot of classes are featuring this documentary. Yeah, I made a living for three years just screening the film. Like, I, I did 300 screenings. In three so years. a lot of it was, like, schools or, you know. Most of them. Were lots. colleges. Yeah, there's a lot of colleges. Lot. I mean, we did, I mean, it, it screened in everywhere from, like, the highest tech movie theaters, mm-hmm. um, you know, for festivals or just one-off type things, to bar floors, to, I mean, I would do, I, I did a Midwestern tour where we, like, played a play on a tv screen at a punk show and then the next day would be at like a university for like 600 kids and then it would be at like some film festival and then and back back to another punk show you know and you're you know you punk rock since about 13 14 so much music all the musical aspects like you you toured a film but did you feel like you were like a band a little you know a solo artist yeah, I touring with the band. So you were all, you know, it was all connected all along, which is probably the way you preferred it. Um, yeah, I mean, like before Afropunk, the festival or even like the people who run the festival now, before they even ever knew I existed, I had already done 100 screenings. Mm-hmm. And there was um, one tour in particular where um, I did like, I don't know if it was eight or 16 dates, but it was like, you know, a couple weeks with this band, Ricky Fitz, which was the the uh, brother of Matt Davis, who was in Ten Grand, and he he died in he died, and it, it's mentioned in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end, yeah. yeah. So Matt Davis was a kind of like a scene mover and shaker, and in a great band called Ten Grand. His younger brother. Um, kind of followed in his footsteps and was in this band called Ricky Fitz. And I was like, oh, it'd be great to do this, like their first Midwestern tour and I'll go with them and I'll screen the film like before the show. And, um, you know, we were literally in like a van or a bus or a little school bus or whatever. And, you know, did played all kinds of events. We even were in Minneapolis. Yeah. I, I, I remember where I met, um, uh, uh, Steph, um, POS. Yeah, Steph. I remember I met him there. He must have been um, really young. Yeah, I mean, this was like 15 years ago. Yeah. But, um, like, uh, that, that was like, that's one of the fondest, like, you know, memories, like before, all my fondest memories of Papa Punk were always like these very small, intimate experiences that like, um, mm-hmm. you know, like it's it's a great ego boost to like, you know, when we did Toronto that week, I mean, it was insanity. I did, I got the most press of the festival and it was like, I was on the cover of every newspaper. It was insane. It was insane. Like, yeah. and I felt like a rock star for a week. And then I went back home to my crappy apartment and like, yeah. you know, like, but, but you rice. embrace it. You, know? you, you embrace it, but you didn't toil in it. You didn't. No, I mean know. it's like I, I. I'm sure that if you talk to somebody from that time, they'll say <laughs> that I was like I had a big ego. <laughs> you know, I'm sure. Like you know, I, at a certain point, I was like, oh yeah, I can like meet girls. Like I was like a rock star, but it was like really based in like 
trying to spread this message. Yeah. You know? Right. Um, you needed to maintain that energy to keep spreading that message. Yeah. And it, it, there was a lot of energy and there were a lot of, like, there was a lot of support. You know, I had, like, this, like, like whirlwind of interns, people who would like, I just want to be part of it. And they would come in and then they screen shirts for a day and they'd be like, this job sucks. And they'd like, you know, like, you know? but you know, like I'm getting faxes, uh, you know, like I was, I had an office in my mom's house and I was like, yeah, you know, what made you say, I want to make a film? Like how did the film camera end up being? How did you say, I want to like say action? Like, is this the first thing you like created produced? Like yeah. Before you made, comp, you know, before you illustrated, before you, with the ink. Yeah, I was um, in my, you know, out of high school, I, I went to art high school and I like mm-hmm. was focused on sculpture. Mm-hmm. And like I moved to Seattle when I was like 19 and I was like really focused on like being this fine artist. And I was making these, these uh, figurative sculptures that, um, you know, my first, it was weird. Like my first uh, show was in this like little kind of gallery that also like sold maybe like Japanese toys or something like that, you know? And um, like the photograph of my sculpture was on the cover of the like art section of the Seattle Times or something like that. And I remember really being you know, of course I was excited, but I was also kind of disappointed. It was like, really? This is like my first show, this Ricky Dinklo gallery, and I'm on the cover of this newspaper? Like, okay, I need a bigger pond, you know? And granted, maybe if I would have stayed there, I would have, you know, <laughs> I'd like own my own house or something. I don't know. But, you know, um, so I moved back to New York and um, within like six months I had like found my crew and I was like, uh, I was promoting parties and, um, we had like this big, we would like to think legendary party, um, at this bar called, or this club called what life. Kind of parties or? No, it was like, uh, one DJ was playing like Britpop and the other one was playing like soul and kind of, hippie funk kind of stuff um but it was like they were throwing a lot of money at this party so we had like go-go dancers with a fashion designer who made new costumes for them every week and you know it was connected to um this other party that was kind of a lot of the people from Squeezebox, which was like kind of that like tranny uh you know supposed to say that um like trans rock we call them trannies back then um, just with this rock and roll, um, gay scene that was really popular in New York at the time, um, was also happening in conjunction with this party. And it was like, it, our party was called On, theirs was called Lust for Life. And it was like a big, like seven, 800 people on a Wednesday night, uh, thing. Um, so I got a taste of like how to get, you know, like, like short how to get stuff. people in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I can kind of speak to that like a scene like that right? yeah like you were around yeah like actually short bus that scene was a little after yeah and we actually afropunk did our 2007 new year's eve party in the loft that short bus was filmed with all of those girls um but it was like definitely this kind of like queer scenester 
like mod rock and roll thing that was like kind of pre before like when like rock and roll parties were playing ACDC and not like Fisher Spooner or something. You know what I'm saying? Like before Electro Clash and all that. Anyways, um, I got my taste of like, oh, this is how you get people to an event. You know, this is how, you know, and, um, but I was really focused on sculpture and fine arts. There was like a series of events where I like I moved out of this loft and had a little apartment and couldn't bring my sculptures and whatever. And then I was like, okay, what kind of art can I make? I need it to be small, you know? So, um, and that's what right when I was thinking about my identity and my anger towards the punk scene and all this stuff. So that's what brought on Afropunk. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I can do this on a computer. That's, well, they were pretty big at the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, on a tower. <laughs> you didn't have any like reservations about like jumping into being behind the camera and like, how do I make a movie? No, because I, like, I understand composition yeah, and right. I watched a ton of documentaries before I got started. And I was uh-huh. like, that sucks. This is good. Yeah. Like, what can I learn from this? Like, you know, and really I just tried to make a movie that was like half watt stacks and half streetwise you had your standards yeah and it was like i might have done a little better on the interviews than watt stacks and it didn't even come close to the like the narrative aspect of streetwise but i knew what i was going for you know so and i was like it's punk rock so even if it sounds kind of bad and whatever it's like <laughs> i'm gonna get for, i'm gonna be forgiven yeah. because it's like you know it's no one's gonna this, like, this, this. Yeah. yeah exactly it's like they're gonna they're not gonna be looking for flaws they're gonna be looking for polish <laughs> to criticize yeah, so. yeah. i mean i'm just like I, I just i just felt like you know what when i was 17 i had a record label and i didn't know what i was doing and i like sold a few thousand copies of every record i put out mm-hmm. like so, you know cool Pre, like, pre-internet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was getting cash in an envelope, you know? And I was, <laughs> like, you know? So, I mean, I think that having that ex- that empowerment of, like, putting on a show and people attending when you're, like, 17 years old or bringing some records to a show and people buying them, yeah, like, lets you... It gave me the confidence to say, like, well, I could do, like, whatever, right? Where did that spirit come from? Well, I give credit. To, I give credit to punk rock. You know, straight I, up. I feel like um, punk rock was your mentor. Of it's yeah. I, I think it was. It's for any criticism I can give, the praise that I can give is like the DIY spirit and um, being told without any reservation that like if you have words, put them on a page and people will like buy it from you. Like they want to know what you're thinking. Like if you have like i wasn't very musically inclined but you know i could support people who were and Mm -hmm. you know it didn't feel like a big deal because like everybody had a zine and everybody had a record label like everybody was putting on shows you know and we were all under 18 you know so Hmm. you know i've always said like i I hope my kids get involved in punk and hardcore, despite whatever things I have to say about or critiques I have, because I want them to learn very early on that they can do whatever they want. And 
punk that's in top i bought all of those mm-hmm. like adages yeah like i hook line and sinker i completely bought in and still to this day like you know i for better or worse and oftentimes it's worse i would i'll be poor in order to not uh have some job that i hate or whatever you know what is your weapon of choice and what battles are you fighting ah um well i've i've always been i've always considered myself like a storyteller and um so the way that i've been able to affect change has definitely been with my words um not much of a physical fighter i was uh bullied a lot as a kid um and I've, like I said, I witnessed a lot of violence growing up, so it's made me, um, you know, somewhat of a wimp in that arena. But I've found that, like, being able to articulate my ideas, like, has been a pretty, like, strong weapon. Mm-hmm. So. And what battles? Well, I mean, I think that the the most obvious is like the the one for validating um the other black experience mm-hmm. and um, um giving giving a voice to the voiceless so to speak um and you know i mean and that also you know we've been talking about afropunk but even within my tattooing i um you know i've been vegan for 25 years and uh i was the first person in los angeles to offer a vegan tattoo procedure and that um was just because like i want to stay like aligned with my politics Mm -hmm. you know so um you know if i can wherever i can do that i I do Mm -hmm. oh yeah the battlegrounds don't have to be relegated to specific professions like oh i love to tattoo and i'm not compromising my politics here we go yeah yeah i mean you know i had i remember um years ago when i went when i was like kind of in the thick of like you know my african k-day with like the um very early festivals and when we were doing like monthly party and that stuff uh, my girlfriend at the time, like, questioned me because I, I said something about being political. And she's like, how are you political? And because we were partying, like, we were like, you know, setting up events and getting hammered, you know, <laughs> like, you know, and, um, and I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, like, I don't want to toot my own horn, but probably the first all black mosh pit in history happened on my watch. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. mm-hmm that is political you know giving a voice to uh hundreds or thousands of of uh young black people who previously felt alone and uniting them like that's political you know like i you know i i've i've attended my fair share of rallies and and i very much uh appreciate that people organize these things and let 
the masses know like what what we're going for here um but that's like that's not my brand of organizing that's just not mm-hmm. you know like one thing that you may or may not have on your list is like when i moved to los angeles uh one of the first things i did was uh, i was really into cycling at that time and I was, and at that time, Los Angeles had this huge bike culture where people were like going on. I mean, there were, there was one ride where like 800 people would come and they had to break it up in four different groups and cops were like following us with a spotlight and all stuff. And I'm riding with 800 people taking over like freeways sometimes. And, and I'm looking around and I'm like, the amount of black people does not equal the amount of black people that are in this city. You know, there's not a like I don't expect it to be like this huge, massive, but there's like 800 people and I'm counting 16 black people like mm-hmm. this doesn't feel right. And what I know from Afropunk and what I know from party promoting is you simply have to be invited, you know, mm. and black folks, from my experience, black folks more than any other group I've dealt with really need to be invited like they like black folks won't just feel comfortable showing up to places but having a flyer that says afro on it it tells you who's who this is for you Mm -hmm. know Mm -hmm. and one black person handing it to another black person is a huge deal you know so when i first moved to la and was getting involved in this bike culture I met these two other black cyclists and I was like, you know, like, what do you think about us starting a a ride for us? And they're like, what do you mean? You know? And I was just like, I don't know, black kids on bikes. Like, let's just like get, you know, let's see what happens, you know? And uh, I mean, there was backlash, but there was also, but within the 40 to 60 to 80 people who came over the period, you know, would come every, I think we were doing it once a month. Um, like there was power, there was like this feeling of like, man, we're, we, we can do this, you know, we can do it, it even in a simple act of just riding a bike, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, there's politics in that. And like, if anyone was to question, how is that political? Like watch 80 black people ride through Beverly Hills and, and you'll, you're going to find out how political it is, mm-hmm. you know, or conversely. Watch 80 people walk, drive, ride, uh, black folks ride their bike through lots. Either way. The same deal. Mm-hmm. Every, both times, it's like jaws on the ground. What is going on? You know? Um, and, uh, you know, and then the fact that, like, um, because I'm saying, you know, it's called Freedom Ride, and then AKA Black Kids on Bikes, and that kind of Black Kids on Bikes kind of took over people like that. But um, the the backlash from the bike cycling community oh. was like the same old like boohoo white tears that you know <laughs> like oh you know it's just like it's embarrassing to even have to like talk about you know like yeah. are we still calling are we still crying reverse racism yeah. you know it's like come no one's gonna beat you up but it's not for you you know like it's, and that's okay yeah. like i believe that like like i am i strongly am in support of safe spaces and i want white people to have safe spaces 
I just don't want them to be like Nazi rallies, you know? <laughs> I want white people to be able to get together and talk about race, class, whatever issues they're worried about in a place where they can comfortably do that mm-hmm. and have somebody in there be like smart enough to be like, no, that's privilege. Like, you know, like if we could get like a Tim Wise of it, you know, in a group and then just grab a bunch of white people and like, let's talk, you know? Mm-hmm. We would get so much further, so much further. Every time I've had oh, a white ally who like really could just tell their family that they're full of shit, mm-hmm. they are so much more prone to listen, yeah. you know? That white on white work. Yeah, It's great. It's great. So I'm just like, anyways, the, to get to the, the point of like, no, you don't have to be uh, an activist by trade or even call yourself that, you know, like I'm just saying like, you know, by the simple fact of me having a flyer that says vegan tattoos, that's telling people that's like reminding people that like veganism exists. That reminds people like, wait, like what's not vegan about tattoos? You know, like these questions come up and questions is what we need to have change. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. It's funny you brought that up because like, yeah, he's getting fired up about white people. And we, you know, you ain't got you ain't got to destroy white people, but we, we appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, I yeah. like there are probably I mean, there are numerous white people throughout my life time that have aided and been and been are wonderful people. And some of my and and I can reverse it and say some of my closest friends are white. Like I have some some very close friends who are white who also had to be schooled, mm. you know, mm-hmm. yeah. who I also had to call out for white privilege, who have also, you know, who now send me messages of like, how do I deal with this? Because they're because they're frustrated about some other white person, you know, and to the point where I'm like, I, I don't know, like. Just figure it out. Open your eyes now. It's your job. Yeah. <laughs> but like, you know, I just think like, you know, I've had to to uh, have conversations with my mom, with my cousins, with my like, you know, with my close friends, um, with clients, whatever. Like, and it's excuse me. If people are open to listening, I'm more than happy to have conversations you know Mm -hmm. even my girlfriend who's half asian um we like talk about race in in ways where we have to educate one another because we have different experiences and we you know and we've also you know she comes from a very like academic background and i come from a little bit more of a life experience background and we you know, I think that our uh, experiences have like informed one another where we have like a more well-rounded understanding of like our own experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, so I can definitely speak for myself and say that, you know, those fights have definitely helped me. You know. And uh, yeah, I mean, we have a, as artists, we're told, at the very least, we're told, whether we're conscious of it or not, that we need to cultivate our brand, right? But as artists, we're still people, and like I think all of us, our brand is, one of our brands is a brand of silence or a brand of 
voice or action. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, a lot of us when it comes to race, especially, we our brand is silence. And uh You're to say it. we yeah, we lose friend we lose friends for I got a best friend who's white and it's like oh. even as like a you see me in the streets, even as that, I'm like, man, you know, what do you mean? to try to have that talk uh, about their privilege and their, this is, you know, this is new stuff, you know, like this is like the, the concept of white privilege The like I first heard the word white privilege in uh, 92, there's this band called Downcast who has a song called Privilege and it's, you know. And my white friend turned me on to it and he was like kind of making fun of this guy, like, oh, I was, you know, like, and I mean, he was, he, he was, he was kind of talking about like white tears and my, my white friend, you know, mm-hmm. but, <laughs> but I feel like, you know, we're teenagers and we're in the hardcore scene and I feel like we're like, those politics were maybe 20 years ahead of their time, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, now. I feel like if you talk to um, a lot, if you talk to, I would like to say the, the majority, but I know I live in a California bubble. But if you if you talk to uh, a lot of teenagers, um, they're all talking about privilege. They're all talking. I mean, you. I can go on Instagrams and people are like putting what their uh, their gender pronoun is. You know, mm-hmm. whether they're binary or not you know it's just kind of like it's it's another generation you know definitely and i feel i I, like i like seeing like that 15 year olds feel like it's appropriate to write you know pronouns him her like in their instagram uh description or whatever like that tells me like okay i have something to learn from you because we ain't doing yeah I'm just taking it for granted. Like I got a beard, and, you know, and, you know, and you know, these, these, you know, when it comes to that kind of stuff, it's like, Oh, you know what? Like now we, we, you know, like I can talk to my mom about what transgender is and she's like, not confused. You know what I'm saying? Like, because there's like TV shows on it, you know, that take that treat it respectfully. It's not like just like Maury Povich or something, you know? <laughs> So it's like, um, you know, so part of me feels like there's, you know, the problems aren't going away, but there is an evolution. Yeah. Shining a light on the future, which is the younger generations who are, who are displaying that evolution in mass compared to our generation. Yeah. Yeah. And think how much further along we are, our generation is to our parents, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and between their parents is like night and day you know our our grandparents it's like geez like i love you but you guys all gotta die off (laughs) you know so trusting that evolution is important you would say yeah i think so i think that it's really easy to to get caught up in like you know right now you know with like trump or something it feels like oh god we're like you know the world is gonna end can't get any worse yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Like, you know, we forget, like, you know, we weren't around for, like, the Red Scare. How do you deliberate with yourself and choose a direction to go in creatively for a given period of your life? And what period are you in right now when it comes to that? I really just kind of go with the flow. 
and go with like the medium that makes sense for like whatever I'm trying to say. So when I was a sculptor, it didn't make sense to make a sculpture about my black punk identity. Like I didn't feel like it would reach in the way that I wanted it to. Um, I fell into tattooing kind of as a reaction to um, somewhat of the ghetto celebrity of Afropunk. I kind of wanted to fall into obscurity a bit, um, which was part of my move to California. Um, but, and, 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 you know, tattooing was definitely like a, uh, I've been tattooing almost 10 years now and it, and it was like, still got my artistic high from doing this work and, and I, and I was seeing, I have moments where like I do a really good piece and I feel really great or I, or I do something that's very sentimental to an individual. And, you know, we get that kind of LA ink moment where they're crying and I'm like, Oh, yay, you know, and, it, and it's, I'm joking, but it does sincerely feel great. Mm -hmm. Um, but I've been yearning for a while to, to like, get back out there. And I don't know if it's like ego or, or like a genuine desire for change or whatever, a little bit of both, I don't know. But um, about three years ago when I started dating my girlfriend, she uh, kind of turned me on to the world of graphic novels. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she'd hear my stories and she'd be like, this would be a great graphic novel, you know? And I was like, yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm like, I'm such an asshole. I'm like resistant to everything. <laughs> so, um, you know, she like gave me, I think she gave me blankets, Craig Thompson's mm -hmm. blankets. Mm -hmm. And I read it and I was like, yeah, this is good. She's like, I could probably do better. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I I know that I'll, that that statement will like come back to me one day. But like, I, re I you know I and then I started like really getting into reading all these books, and I was like, yeah. you know what, the bar is really low. Like, mm. the illustrations are in some of these books are phenomenal. Mm -hmm. The stories in some of these books are phenomenal, but. They don't always, they're not always the same book, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot of times, you know, like I just read Black Hole, which is like a, won every award in... That's sitting on my shelf. Yeah, yeah. I'm you know, it, it's it's won every comic award there is. And it is amazing looking. Story is okay. You know, it's totally readable. It's not like, oh, this sucks, you know? But it's like, eh, you know? Um... Just to go through books, I, I just read this one summer, which is a perfect book. <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah, that's my favorite. I think um, perfect illustrations for my like what I like to look at, mm -hmm. and the story is amazing. Um, I'm I'm like, and I don't read superhero comics, so you know, I um, so when I'm so any shit talking I might have, it's like really in the memoir slash um, like 
you know, stuff that's like, if it's not a memoir, it reads like a memoir, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, all right, I'm going to try to do this. So, um, I, uh, well, I started with, uh, uh, I don't want to talk about that. Um, basically I, eventually I got to this thing where I'm like, okay, I'm just going to like start writing about, uh, punk rock, you know, like that's my love. Let me just do that. Let me start in the beginning, you know? So I started writing this story that meant to, that was meant to be like, I had this idea about making one book for each year that I was like actively involved. Um, but it quickly became apparent to me that like, I, I, they'll take my whole lifetime. So, <laughs> so, um, so I wrote this, I wrote this, I, I spent about a year writing the script for this, uh, this book that's about eighth grade. And, um, and eighth grade is significant for me for so many reasons, like it is for so many people, but, um, for me, it was the year that I found punk. I was like a skater before that and, you know, happened across, you know, black flag and descendants and that kind of stuff. And I moved. So yet another move in sixth and seventh grade, I lived in Panama and then in eighth grade, I moved back to the high desert. So something happened between fifth and eighth grade. And all the kids that I knew, like, were already having sex and they were already doing drugs, you know. And I walked onto the campus in eighth grade and, like, people are making out. And I'm like, holy shit, like, I haven't even held anyone's hand. Like, what the, how do I get that? You know, <laughs> you know, um, and also I'm really scared of that, you know, and, um, you know, it's like this wild time, right? So I, uh, you know, I, I saw this kid, this black kid, and he was so cool looking and he had boots and a flannel wrapper in his waist and he was like <laughs> jumping over people. And I was like. <laughs> I was like, that kid is awesome. Like, I want to be friends with that kid. He was you old. Know? He was in eighth grade too. He was like, he was old for eighth grade. I, okay. I, like he, he might've been 14 becoming 15, you know, yeah, or something yeah. like, I don't know what his deal was, but he, he, he was older than me. Um, <clears throat> but he was definitely like, he already had his identity, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And um, we became fast friends and we like, started band and you know it's one of those things like do you play anything no well you should play something you know (laughs) what do i play well i play guitar so you play bass you know (laughs) that kind of thing um and uh i um so in the book i like kind of mesh i mesh stories and squeeze four people in one person because who wants to hear about 40 different characters but um mm-hmm. basically there's uh there's a uh the 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 issue arrives when i meet his best friend his best friend since he was three years old who's a white power kid and so you have this nazi skinhead who's best friends with this black kid and in a band with, it was, yeah, it was 
basically you got a Nazi who's in a band of two black guys. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and that sounds crazy, but if you're from the high desert, it's not. You know, because um, a they're fourteen. Like he doesn't know what he's really about. You know, he's got outside influences telling him whatever's telling him that he needs to have a swastika on his wall or whatever, you know? And um and he really likes his best friend. And it turns out he likes me too. You know? And you know, so the you know, that's kind of where the story kind of mm. pops off, you know. And of course there's like the really smart goth girl who like I just desperately want to kiss. You know? <laughs> you know, like um and seems to have like all the answers, you know. Uh-huh. Um, so it's it's just a thing of like uh, so the basically the story is like that in a nutshell. It's like dealing with coming of age, mm-hmm. learning about punk rock, dealing with my identity, mm-hmm. um, and it's also like um, you know, there's it's not just like a mustache twirling villain, but it's like a complicated kid who like um, has his own rough family life and uh um yeah so so basically i'm i uh what i have in place is a finished script script check i I have an agent check and um if you've seen my illustration style it's very like photo based Mm -hmm. so i've basically like cast this whole thing and so i spent the last few months like seeking out uh basically i'm just like this creep on instagram looking at 14 Can 17 I? year olds like hey <laughs> you're a punk rocker do you want to be in this comic so um yeah so next week i'm gonna i'm meeting with some of these kids and like having them pose for a bunch of uh these yeah. you know cells or whatever and then so hopefully i my goal by the end of the summer is just to have the first like 10 to 15 pages completely drawn and uh, so I can start submitting it, mm-hmm. you know. And the I, I I previously worked on another comic that's um, about um, it's kind of like a how to get tattooed um, book, and it's not finished yet. But I sent out a lot. I, I finished like eighty pages of it, and I sent it out to a lot of publishers, and um, they were all like, "This is cool. We don't know what to do with it, but I really want to hear about this punk book." You know, mm-hmm. so um, so basically, I kind of put that on hold. Something I kind of had to like come to terms with is that like if I'm gonna make a memoir of any kind, it's gonna have pieces of it that are like Afropunk because Afropunk is a memoir. You know, mm-hmm. like I wasn't in it, but going back to 14 years old. This is... Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. You know, that's, you know, that's why I'm at. I'm really excited about it. Did anything new come up or anything surprise you about yourself as you like you're unpeeling layers of yourself because literally we get older. And there's just more layers to unpeel. Like. Yeah. I think that I one thing was like I have I've developed a uh, empathy for my mom because mm. like like I was an asshole, you know, and I like don't dumb that down in the book, you know? And, um, but now I'm also a parent and I've been on this other side where, you know, my kid is like almost nine 
but she there's moments where she's been an asshole since she was six five you know where she like is like i'm like is teenager here already like because you know i mean because it's like there's times where i'm like oh i can see like what my mom like she didn't know how to break through or how to like relate in a way that like would allow me to communicate what I needed to say to her. Um, And it would come out in like either lashing out or just slamming the door in her face, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we all like, before we have kids say like, well, my kid's not going to be like that because I'm going to be this, that, and the other, you know? And it's like, yeah to a degree and no because humans are humans and they need to develop and part of developing is like uh resisting your parents and you know coming up with your own ideas or whatever you know mm-hmm. i will say that if my daughter slammed the door in my face she won't have a door but <laughs> yeah yeah i got a night It's it's I have a friend, my kids that have school are assholes, that's for sure. And we just try to balance Yeah. Try to balance this. Yeah. With exposure. Yeah. It's an exposure. Yeah. I mean, you know, like when my kid had like a bunch of you know bully type identity stuff, you know, whatever, like I I'm just like, all right, you know, part of it is like I think I I can do better than my mom did for me because I vividly remember those experiences. And I think that there's a part of me that always knew I'd be a dad. And I was like, I'm going to hold on to like what, you know, but then there's other stuff that I don't know what I'm doing, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's just like, all right, well, let's see, you know, like I can only tell you to not hang out with those girls so much, you know, Mm -hmm. let's like, you know, Maybe I can slyly uh, get you involved in an after school thing. And, you know, and, you know, I'm super stoked. I got her into roller derby and she's like so into it. And I'm just like, yes, like goodbye, Katy Perry, you know, (laughs) hello, goth stuff. Like, you know, it's like, you know, it's just like she found, she somehow found out about the cure and she Uh, somehow found out about yeah, um, you know Morrissey and roller derby and like I casually when I don't like something I was like don't listen that music is trash do believe certain music is trash but whatever that's just my opinion um, instead of that I just started like casually like oh if I just don't react she gonna be like maybe Kate maybe Kate Perry and all that because like I went to the Grammys one year and I like did it I, tr- I tricked I knew what I was doing went to the Grammys one year and you know you meet all some of those pop stars and just, I was just fortunate to be whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I come home and my daughter knew I was there. I was like, did you meet Taylor Swift? I'm like, yeah. So did you meet Katy Perry? Like, and, I, and I'm like, I do stagehand work for the stadium shows back in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. So did you meet this? Did you meet Ariana Grande? Yeah. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah. It's like, were they cool? I was like, all right. And then I just like, you want some more potatoes? And like, <laughs> so then she's just thinking like, damn, they must not be all that. He ain't even hyped about them. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's so, you know, you got to do what you got yeah, I mean, to do, do. Yeah. I think that, like, you know, I mean, my secret weapon with her is that she's in love with my girlfriend. So if 
she if my girlfriend says something's cool she wants uh-huh. to do it you know uh-huh. so it's kind of like finding another like kids are always going to think that their parents are kind of lame you know mm-hmm. i'm like i'm so cool you know yeah like, i've seen your friend i know i'm your role model like i'm way cool <laughs> you know, like, but you know but you but you know like i'm cool in a way that like you don't quite understand yet you know so <laughs> you know like hey whatever i get it like i i i'll settle for being for her being able to talk to me mm. yeah um i don't need her to think that i'm like a uh interesting like podcast worthy person i just th- need her to like think <laughs> that like if something sucks she can talk to me about it you know yeah so i want to make sure that there are cool people in like my cypher who can like mm-hmm. catch her mm-hmm. yeah you know mm-hmm. and as long as she's always got that person they'll come back to me and tell me what she said or whatever you know it's like it's fine do you feel like so you're right you're writing about eighth grade uh, and you're reflecting on your relationship with your you know your relationship with your mother at the time you're going through you're you're experiencing fatherhood and navigating that what other ways has um what ways has you know that also continued to come full circle of the process of this uh the graphic novel so something that I've learned through the process, something that I've come to terms with through the process of this graphic novel project is that I struggle with work addiction in a way that is like any, like any other addiction isn't healthy. Mm-hmm. Yet um, we live in a society that um, gives all the praise and accolades to work addicts. Um, and it's funny because I, when I look back on my life, I'm like, oh, like I've lost every relationship I've ever had because I chose work over it. I've lost, you know, like if I, if I have to, if I, if I have to put, if I have to put the blame if I'm if I, if I meant to accept responsibility for like the parts of the equation that I have, it usually points back to work. Mm-hmm. And like, let's face it, like you guys are interviewing me because of like all the work that I've done, you know? And it's funny because I watch these, I'm, I watch a lot of documentaries and when the documentaries are about celebrity, like the Dre documentary, and the, it was Dre and the guy from Interscope. Yeah. You know, if you if you watch that or the RGB documentary that's out right now, the um, Ruth Gator, uh, Bader Ginsburg, or, uh, you know, there's a four hour Tom Petty documentary, you know, like you can name, like, name any person. The way they praise The Rock and Kevin Hart about when they're working on. Name, name, you can name anybody and and the part of the story that they never talk about is what their partners are experiencing mm. you know like how do you get how how are you or are their children you know so it's like tom petty went on tour for two years with bob dylan he played in his band 
and was the backup band for Bob Dylan. They didn't have a night off for two years. How do you raise your kids and maintain your relationship, you know, with with that kind of, you know, that dude has, I didn't even realize how many hits that guy had, you know, I'm thinking like, oh, four or five, the dude has like 20 easy, 20 hits, mm-hmm. easily, like number one, right? How do you, how do you, how do you do that, get there without compromising your family? And I like, so then I, being a work addict who's like aware of that, I like, we'll finish the documentary and then I'm like, I'll look up, you know, I'm like, how do you have four hours and you need to talk about your kids or your wife at all? And I look it up and I'm like, oh, his wife left him. His wife became a drug addict and left him citing loneliness, you know, like, you know, I don't want to like sit there and slander all of these individual artists because like, thank God for them. You know, but I also recognize that, like, I don't want to look back and be like, man, I made like six books. Eh, like, like terrible dad. And my, yeah, my dad was, you know, like my kid is, I have no relationship with my kids, you know, right, like, right. Um, but it's hard, you know, having now like coming to terms with that, like I'm coming to terms with it every day. Like I, you know. I'm on the verge of losing my relationship all the time because even when I'm, you know, like I fir- first I thought addiction was just like, okay, well you just stop doing the thing, you know? Or in my case, like I regulate, you know, like, okay, I don't work after this hour. I only work during these times. I like make carve out space, whatever, you know, I'm, I have to be present when other, whatever. But there's this whole other aspect of just like not being able to enjoy life, you know? And yeah, because I'm either thinking about it or, or I'm just like, I'm just, I got an addict brain, right? So, you know, so I'll have an experience where, um, you know, my girlfriend will always bring this up. We're in Maui and we spent all week and, uh, you know, going on hikes, been on the beach, whatever. But whenever there was a spare moment, I was like drawing on my iPad or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So I'd be on the beach for six hours and I don't look up I'm just drawing, you know, and I'm like, well, I'm here with you. Like, you know, like that doesn't count, you know? Mm-hmm. And then at one point in the end of the trip, she's like, you know, can you put down your iPad and watch the sunset with me? And I was like, I thought you said this was like a free day. Like I can do whatever I want. And I, you know, I just fucking say some bullshit that is so hurtful and, and, uh, will never go away, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, you know, and it's the kind of thing where, you know, a year, two years, if we make it 10 years from now, she'll still have that memory of the day that I wouldn't watch the sunset because I wanted to, like, draw some page that I don't even know what, what it was. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, you know, the under, I guess to ask the question of, like, what I'm learning beyond, like, this is not the question you were asking, but, like, I'm learning a lot about myself, not because of the project, but because of my relationship in regards to the project, you know? But um, I definitely have to like keep all this in check, you know? And it's, and it's really challenging and there's not, 
a great support like system in place for it you know is it you know why why is there not that support system what does that support system look like and what what frustrates you about the fact that there isn't one well i mean my experience is like first of all you know you have like alcoholics and heroin addicts and coke addicts or whatever and like for them the first step beyond admitting you're an alcoholic you're an addict is like you got to stop doing that thing you know and for like work addicts or for like uh you know eating disorders or something like you know you gotta you gotta eat you know my work is actually like i'm not addicted to tattooing though when i first started that was probably what ended my relationship with my kid's mom was you know it was more important for me to like learn how to draw a rose properly than spend time with her, you know? Mm. And, um, but, you know, I, I, I can't, I can just stop Make I could like just forget the comic and just not do it, but it would probably transfer into something else, you know? Um, so, you know, so it's a little bit more difficult in that regard. Um, now, as far as the support system is concerned, you know, like, I mean, if somebody's interested in like the 12 steps or whatever, like in Los Angeles, which is a huge city, there's two meetings um, dedicated to, to work addiction. Um, one of them is like on the other side of town, so I can't do that. It's like really inconvenient. And the other one, um, I've been to and it, it was fine. I just, I, I don't, I don't know if 12 steps is right for me. Um, but, but maybe I also give up on it too soon. I don't know. Um, but I do like try to read a lot, listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen, like I try to, you know, I'm, I communicate with addicts or whatever, but it's, but like I have to talk to like alcoholics to and then or listen to a podcast about alcoholism and then like filter it through and see how it relates to me. Because if you type in workaholic in like the podcast search box, you're going to get all of these things that are like talking about how dope it is yep. to yep. be, you know, like driven. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So it, it's the different, you know, we, we are a culture that celebrates work addiction without acknowledging that it is work addiction. Right. You know, we want to see product, you know, so it's like you've got a, you're a musician. How many albums you got? How many singles? How many like, you know, you need to be prolific. You know, it's all about content. You can't come out with like a couple podcasts a year. You got to you got to be giving it to us, you know, like we are a culture of consumption so um you know you can't you can't you it, it's it's difficult to be like to take your time you know you want to like you want to have like fifty thousand followers on instagram you need to like keep posting you know you can't just do like a really quality post every couple weeks or something like that. you know you gotta like you'd rather have a whole bunch of shit than like 
one really nice thing, you know, whatever. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so, it, you know, so, and, and, and I can be honest for myself, from my experience is that like, there is a component of like ego self slash like self-esteem that comes into play so like for me it's like i'd say i have pretty low self-esteem but i really really didn't like myself growing up like as a kid and you know kind of dealing with all the stuff we talked about and um you know and would look to relationships to like validate me or whatever right and when afropunk came out all of a sudden there were like hundreds and thousands of people that were telling me that I was great. You know, I didn't get to go to college, but I had colleges that were paying me to come talk to students. You know, that made me feel like, damn, I must be the shit, you know, like, um, and, uh, you know, and now I haven't had that for a while. You know, I have the, you know, I do a tattoo, and post it, I get some likes, you know, I, uh, whatever, but I'm not, I'm not getting those, like, that feedback telling me that I'm, like, worth something, you know? So there's a part of me that, the, like, the unhealthy part of me that does art so that people will tell me that I'm, like, worthy, you know? And, um, and I, like, I acknowledge that to be true. And I think that that is true of a lot of people, whether they admit it or not. But um, what I, but then there's other part of me that, uh, you know, the part of me that was like tearing up earlier that recognizes that regardless of what people think of me, the work that I do touches people and changes, has the ability to change lives. You know, I don't know if my future work will do that, but I won't know unless I try to make something. You know, and um, so I'm really just trying to figure I'm struggling with the balance. I'm struggling with like, how do I be a present father, be a present boyfriend, be a uh, um, a tattooer who invests in his clients and still have time to make anything else, you know? And catch some shows on Netflix. You know, like, you know, how do you how do you do all of that stuff? And and what gets sacrificed when there's failure? And oftentimes, what gets sacrificed is my relationship, which um, is you know kind of the most important piece. You know, because when my kids grow up, go to college, like, or don't go to college, whatever they're gonna do. Not gonna be in the house with me. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. I'm gonna need, I, I gotta, uh, like, who, who's gonna be there? You know, my like Instagram followers, <laughs> you know? So, um, you know, so it's like, it's, it's a constant struggle and it's something that I don't think Anyway, I don't hear, there's not the conversation happening, you know, yeah. it's definitely not, um, definitely wasn't in that, uh, Dre documentary. 
It de- you know wasn't in that. Uh, Kobe wasn't being a, might not have been being a good dad when he was scoring eighty one points. Maybe not. I mean, that's the thing. It's just like we want, we want our, we, you know, you want to excel. Like we want, I want, I want my favorite musicians to keep making music. But (laughs) (laughs) a lot of them could have stopped after the first record. But, um, but you know, like I, 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 I want as artists, we, we need to keep expressing ourselves. You know. And if you're talking about sports or whatever, like whatever it is, you know, there's geniuses in every field. There's people who are just have this amazing talent. We want to, we get joy out of it. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, That's why we wanted Dave Chappelle and D'Angelo to come back. Yeah, but there's, there's, but there's also no shortage of these people who like um, do it at the sacrifice of their families yeah. or of their own happiness or, you know, I mean, uh, you know, like poor Anthony uh, Bourdain. Bourdain just like killed himself. He on the outside, it's like you got every, you got a dream job. You get to go around the world, eat everything, meet everybody, like drink with everybody. Like it's, it sounds like an amazing party, but like, uh, you know, he wasn't slowing down, and he's got a young daughter. Yeah, and it, you know. You know, it's just so it's just so sad, you know, and it's not just like granted, I'm sure that like you have to have some level of depression and whatnot that that we're not seeing on, you know, on the outside. Um, But. If somebody was just like if he was able to hear like, dude, like take a year off, you've got we got 80 episodes to catch up on, you know, (laughs) like take a year off and. Cool, like cool out with your kids or whatever but I, I always like I always felt like when I would hear stuff like that I would be like well, you just don't know what it's like to be an artist mm. that's what I feel you know yeah. and that could but be I'm, true but I'm still being an asshole <laughs> yeah that could be true and you know and there you know and society places more important on on things that you make money on and you know passion is for frivolous people and all this stuff and you know, I just, you know, I just think there's balance and I don't know what it is. I haven't, I haven't figured out how to, how to properly make, like find, excuse me, find the balance. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's things that I'm learning and it's just, excuse me, and it's kind of like, you know, be the tortoise, don't be the hare, you know. Yeah. But I also want to be honest about it because I want whoever's listening to this to be like, oh, this dude's done all this stuff. Oh, it's not all like, you know, because we um, as a society keep, you know, hearing like, oh, you know, Beyonce, like, the and it's just like, you know what? Like, there's a whole thing going on that we don't even know. They didn't write no song about, you know, <laughs> like they don't want us to know. And, um, and it would be, imagine how, like, how affected we would be as a society if people were able to be honest about, like, yeah, like, I toured, you know, for 16 straight years and I missed my entire kid's life, you know, and she doesn't talk to me now, you know, like. There are people out there like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. 
And if one person would. We just need that. With that, need a, with that platform. A, we need a coalition of those people, you yeah, know? Absolutely. And whether it's, maybe it's not the parents, maybe it's the kids, maybe it's all this like rock royalty who mm-hmm. comes out and says like, yeah, you guys all love, you know, whoever, mm-hmm. but like, you know, he's a good person, but I didn't know it until I was, you know, able to go on tour with him or whatever, you know what I'm saying? It's like, right. whatever it is, it's just, meanwhile, it's like, you know, if you, I'm sure if you talk to any of those people, or most of those people, when they're elderly, you know, they're like, God, I wish I, like, the regret is like, I wish I would have seen my kids' graduation. Mm-hmm. And I wish I would have, or even forget graduation. I wish I would have just been there to make them breakfast, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and I missed out on the first three years of my kids' life because um, I was like staying up till four in the morning, going, then sleeping till noon, and I'd, go to work and then I'd see her for like a half hour before bedtime, you know? Mm-hmm. And I just put all of that, you know, I just thought, well, like the man's got to work, you know, I got to like, you know, make money. And, all, you know, I had all of these things that were just basically like my addiction supporting, protecting itself and saying like, yeah, mm-hmm. like, you know, feed me, you know? Mm-hmm. So, What are you tired of hearing? Um, how do I get on the next Afropunk festival? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been involved in over 10 years. Stop emailing me. <laughs> I'm tired of hearing about Kanye and Kim Kardashian. I'm tired of hearing about Beyonce and Jay-Z. Like, these people are, at least, at least some of those people are making stuff. But like, like... I want to be able to live in a world where, like, I don't listen to any of those artists, yet somehow I know all their songs. I know what they're doing. Mm. I know, like, what, whether it's scandalous or not, somehow I am, I am aware of, like, what's happening. And, like, it doesn't matter. Not, like, none of it, it's just, like, it's just all part of the, like, PR machine you're just playing into. Like, okay, like Jay-Z cheated on Beyonce. Like, we didn't think that was happening. Like, you know, like, okay, she wrote out, oh, they what a surprise. Now they have an album together. Like, I never saw that coming. You know, and it's just like, why are we why are we all such sheep that we have to like we're just continuing to gossip about these people, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm really tired of it. So yeah. There you go. Maybe if you're thinking about your new graphic novel, like what about uh, creating a new anything is most fun for you? Um, I mean, I love the imagination and like, you know, kind of. Uh, I, it's there's this like, maybe I don't have the words, or maybe there just aren't words, but there is. Maybe it's the addiction, but there's just like this high that comes from like creating something and like and seeing it work, you know, like starting with like nothing. And, you know, it's like when I'm if I'm doing like a portrait tattoo, like the first hour, I'm like, this is awful. This person is going to hate me. Like this is not, you know, and then like something happens. It's there's like a, a shift and it's like. The, that first layer is 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 uh, put down, and now I'm on the second layer, and I'm like tweaking the eyeballs, or I'm like 
whatever it is. And it's like, holy shit, this is looking like this. It's, a, you know, and like that same thing happens when I'm like writing and, and I have this like rough outline and then, you know, then I fine tune it. And then it's like, oh, you know, this would work better if I just combine these characters and like, oh, wow, what a dynamic character this turned out to be or what, you know, like, it's just, I guess it's just to like start with nothing and then see something happen. Mm-hmm. What do you want listeners to know? I think that there's there are people who um, have looked up to me or admire my work or my history, and I would like them to like. I would have loved to know that they get to the end of the podcast where they hear like the struggle that's involved and see that I'm just like a regular person who like. Um, like everyone else has like mm-hmm. all of the same kind of problems and um and that like you know the thing that i love about that i loved about being in the punk scene was the complete demystification of celebrity you know like my favorite band in the world i could just write them a letter and they would write me back and say like hey if you're ever in town come visit and then i did and then i stayed at their house for two weeks you know like i could just write to a band and be like hey whenever you're here you know like you can stay at my house i'll make you spaghetti and they would come you know and then you get to find out that like oh they're just regular people you know and um and anyone who i've ever met who's like famous if i've gotten to actually know them in any kind of way it's like other just regular people yeah you know they may or may not have money they may or may not like be happy with their lives you know but you know they have feelings and they have faults and all of this stuff that like we completely gloss over what art are you currently taking in that is uh giving you some vigor recharging you um Uh, I see a lot of movies. Um, Anything you've been uh, enthralled by or disappointed by lately? Films? Oh, I went to see American Animals twice. American Animals. It's really good. Um, It's just really good storytelling. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I told you I just read that book this one summer Mm -hmm. um, that was also very inspiring, like top tier graphic novel. Um, I cry at every episode of uh, Queer Eye. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I think that like, there's, there's, there's so much inspiration everywhere. Um, and I'm gonna just get, kind of get back on this hardcore soapbox and like, um, out and I'm also gonna name drop. Uh, I had the this fortunate experience of being able to hang out with Ian Mackay from Bugazi Minor Threat like for an entire day, and at one point in it, I was talking about at this was like over ten years ago. And there, somebody had made a mashup of uh, Destiny's Child 
song with Fugazi, and it was like right when the mashups were starting to happen or whatever. And I was like, have you heard this? And he was like, who's Destiny's Child? And I'm like, you know, Beyonce, like, you know. And he's like, he's like, I'll never forget this quote. He was like, all the music in the world that's being recorded right this second would take me my entire lifetime to listen to. So why would I turn on the radio and listen to the same song over and over and over again? I was like, well, I already agreed with you. You already, you know, preached on the choir. <laughs> so, like, whatever. But, like, you know, that, that kind of uh, mentality when it comes to art is, like, yes, I will, ex- you know, I just saw, went and saw that movie twice, right? Um, <laughs> so, whatever. But so this is all garbage. No, but, you know, but I really try to, like, experience like just give anything a chance you know like even you know my daughter was really into Katy perry and i'm like this is garbage and then i was like you know what she really loves it let me give it a chance you know i'm not going to the concert with you but i will listen you know and i found something in there you know and i had like a really heavy conversation with my girlfriend where she was like your disdain for pop music is sexist and i was like what are you talking about? And it was like, she made a really good point. It's like this music, there's a reason why it's all women and gay men in that audience. And it's because it's like speaking to a a part of femininity that I'm not in touch with. And so I just dismiss it. And I'm like, you know what? I can, you make a good point. I'll, okay. So it's like, does that mean that I like, am listening to, no, but doesn't mean that like I'm closed off to like all pop music forever. Like, no, I mean I'll I'll listen and then I'll decide if I like it or not. You know. Mm-hmm. There you go, James. Thank you so much for talking to us. Mm-hmm. That's how we're ending. I like Katy Perry. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. yes. <laughs> <We> got, <laughs> they are all of this to get to that. My daughter's gonna love this. Or no, it's yeah. It's been an honor. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you guys. Thank you, James. Thank you, James. James, we love you, man. It was an honor. Thanks for letting us sit down with you. Weapon of choice podcast is a special menu production, and as always, our theme music was brought to you by the very talented Renee Copeland. So thank you, Renee. Yep. And are you following us on Instagram? Are you liking our Facebook page? Are you following us on Twitter? Well, all you got to do is just make it happen. On Instagram, it's at Weapon of Choice Podcast. Facebook, it's at Weapon of Choice Podcast. And on Twitter, it's it's at Weapon Choice Pod. A little shorter. That's Twitter. So you feel me? That's right. And uh, yeah, you get on there, you share the you share the posts, especially when we're releasing episodes. Those episode releases, if you just click and share, or click and share and write why you're sharing because you love the show so much, we appreciate that love. We see it. We see it, and we see you, and we thank you for seeing us. So keep telling your friends, family, colleagues, loved ones, people that get on your nerves. Share with them, too, because they need to hear that real shit. They really do. 
Um, and that's right. They listen to podcasts. Most of us do. And we're so blessed to know that some people that don't listen to podcasts tune into our podcast. That is truly, truly an honor. So thank everyone. Reach out to us any way you can. Um, you know, you can email us. And another reason we want you to email us is because we want to hear from you. What art is keeping you going is is revitalizing you. Look, the reason that we got connected to James was because somebody reached out to us. So maybe you maybe you maybe you've got an artist that you want us to interview. Let us know. Send us an email. That email is weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com. That's weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com. We love hearing from you, everybody. We will see you on the other side for the next Weapon of Choice episode. We love y'all. Peace.